The Pace Line goes over our favorite tour moments, but it's not all about Chris Froome. Any single mention of Greg Vanabernot. Exactly. What do you mean by that? Vanabernot. Vanabernot. And we have more on one of our favorite topics, advocacy. And this is such a no-brainer first step. It is beyond imagination. How somebody after three deaths on this hill could articulate any reasonable argument against six signs. Line the podcast on two wheels for fatty and this show we have cooked up the ratatouille of podcasts which should be a nice light meal since last week uh, fatty was devouring servings of cassoulet fatty of fatcyclist.com how's the uh, the french cooking coming oh c'est magnifique <laughs> you do know what ratatouille is right oh absolutely it's a great movie by pixar yeah, it is a great movie, actually. It's also a nice stew of summer veg that I, uh, I make pretty frequently around here. Fantastic. You can make that for me when we're in Leadville in two weeks. Just thought I'd go ahead and get carbs. the Leadville reference out of the way. Yeah, that's done. It's gone. <laughs> that's it. That's the one you get. <laughs> Onward and upward, please. <laughs> Patrick Brady of RedKitePrayer.com has migrated south for the summer, or at least uh, for part of the summer. Patrick, where do we find you today? Uh, I'm currently in Carlsbad. Uh, I began the day in Irvine. I've actually spent the last couple days in Irvine uh, at an event that I'm not allowed to discuss yet. It's under embargo. But once I can discuss it, it'll be good. Okay. I'm sure it involves some very cool product. Am I guessing right there? (laughs) It's a pretty safe guess, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Michael Houghton here, your host and RKP contributor. Thanks, sir, for finding our little podcast here. Uh, hope you're continuing to catch us. This is show number 27. We're really rolling along here. Again, we post every week, uh, or at least try to. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music is where you can find us. And, of course, on the pages of Red Kite Prayer. Uh, Tour de France, of course, has been uh, the big topic for the last few weeks. But the, the big race is uh, done now. And... Uh, Almost well, I wouldn't say thank goodness. I I kind of like having the show on uh, as kind of background music uh, during my days around here. Uh, but now that Chris Froome has won his uh, third Tour de France, let's try to figure out what our favorite Froomey moment of this tour was, because there were many, of course. Stage eight, uh, Froome's attack down the Parasord, that that crazy fast descent. We heard, in fact, that particular moment brought the press room to its feet. So that's how excited that was. Uh, stage 11, his bridges are gone, and the four-man getaway and the crosswinds. I love that one. Uh, the next day, stage 12, which was Froome's run up Mount Von 2. That was a spectacle. His wipeout on stage 19 on a wet descent was a, a breathless moment. Uh, did you know, in fact, that the yellow jersey this year broke two bicycles during the Tour de France? Yeah, he, he managed to wreck a couple and still win the whole event. Fatty, is uh, yours one of the moments, one of your favorite uh, Froomey moments, or is there something else in there? You know, I really do love the uh, I, I love the moment when he is running up the you know toward the finish line. Um, but I would say my favorite uh, favorite Froome moment is as he's crossing the finish line uh, on the final day. Uh, it just you know he and his team together just. You know, they looked really satisfied and happy and just the look on his face. It was it was priceless. You know, it's it wasn't the look at all of an automaton. It was the look of someone who had uh, given everything he had and had done something pretty amazing. Yeah. In that moment, what was cool, he actually lost time to Quintana mm-hmm. as he just dropped back to the back of the pack and and got together with his teammates and then rolled across the finish line casually. So, I mean, I think he Froome was actually struggling on, on the Champs that day. He looked tired. But, you know, in the end, he had the four minutes plus to give, and 
He went, he rolled to the back, and they all lined up and crossed. And Sky, of course, crossed with with everyone on the team. All nine riders finished the race. So yeah, it was a good night. You're right. It was a great moment. Good on the feel show. good moment. Patrick. Yeah. Yep. It was Patrick uh, Frumi, the tactician, aka Data Man, aka the Praying Mantis. I think you like to call him a Spider Man as well. Uh, spider he on a turn paper us clip. on. What's that? <laughs> spider, spider on, on what? Paper, on a paperclip. Uh, spider on a paperclip. I like this. Well, he really did turn us on this year. Mm. So when you look back on the 2016 tour, what will be your top Froome memory? Oh, you know, the descent of the Parasaur. No question. I mean, he right. actually raced the descent. You know, the one of the big problems with the tour, and, you know, you can't lay this at Froome's feet. But uh, as my friend Bill McGann has put it, uh, the Tour de France has become a climbing championship. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this was an occasion where we saw, uh, you know, the GC leader uh, actually attack a descent. You know, to see any of, you know, the top GC guys uh, really race a descent is, is just so refreshing. You know, that was a big thing in the age of Merckx uh, and even in No. You know, and going back before that was that, you know, guys raced the descents. They raced every inch of every course. And losing that, you know, was part of why, you know, we've ended up with this generation of spiders, you know, racing their bikes. Um, (laughs) You know, they don't they don't need to have uh, the level of control. I remember uh, Andrew Talansky last year complaining about going fast on a descent. And I, oh, my gosh, I wanted to stuff him in a pillowcase. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does I, we love the excitement just animate the race i think that's what fans are, are hoping for we're going to talk in a second here about course setup and maybe ways we can make a this race a little more interesting and possibly involve more people more riders contending for the yellow jersey but again not easy choices a Froome really uh did show us something this year and in fact when he was asked about his favorite moment, he had a hard time coming up with one. I think the most memorable moment would be up, up on one point two, but the most enjoyable moment was attacking on the descent to Luchon and winning that stage. For me, that just epitomized bike racing. It felt like being a kid again and just just pedaling as fast as I could. It was that was the best moment for me. So again, he uh, like both like you, Patrick, loved the descent off the Pyrrhus sword. He thought that was his moment in the tour, his time when he really showed something uh, different altogether about his riding abilities. My favorite Froome moment, well, had to be the the beers hmm. on the final stage. <laughs> yeah, Froome got to the champagne, but before the bubbly, Froome went back to the team card for bottles of Lef or Lefe, I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's a Belgian beer. But a nice touch. He packed his pockets and carried them up to his teammates. And, hey, this is the British team, so no problem putting down a cold one on the bike. So It was a was class moment, moment, you know? It was. But, so, Fatty, I'm like kind of with you there. I like the, the ceremonial. I, I, well, for the serious racing side of things, I loved, and I, I'm going to defer from both of you, I loved when he went with Sagan in the crosswinds. Uh, great moment. Showed a, an alertness and some creativity uh, that we normally don't see out of a GC rider. And like the sending, this is just something that the yellow jersey typically does not do. They let their teammates get in front and maybe pull them up to that type of move. But to stick his nose out in the wind and get across to a guy who's pulling who knows how many watts into that cross. And then dragging Garrett Thomas with him, whose face told a whole different story altogether. That's, for me, that was the top Froome racing moment for, for me. I'm that's what a- I especially loved about that was seeing, you know, the way Garrett Thomas was suffering. You know, it told the story of what that effort was. Loved that. And, yeah. and I'm going to be uh, honest. Uh, I only didn't pick that one because I assumed that both of you would. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But yeah, uh, a quickie on uh, Nairo Quintana. I read his explanation as to what his problem was. I know you guys last show were asking, "Where is this guy? What's he doing?" Um, here's the translation, I guess, of, of what he had to say. Uh, he said, "I'm disappointed to not have been able to create more more of a spectacle. Uh, some of my physique has gone missing. I'm sure he means like health or fitness." He said he had been suffering from allergies. Yeah. Okay, no problem because both of uh, both of them, Froome and Quintana have signed up for the Vuelta. So we'll see them uh, square off there. Now, uh, let's get to our non-Froom moments. 
the those occasions that did not involve, or at least did not involve directly, the yellow jersey. Oh, so we're not we have, talking uh, about like when he elbowed the spectator. No, that, that's that, wasn't, out. that should have been in the in the last thing I just asked. You. Well, I mean, it wasn't right. a very Froome moment in a traditional sense. So I was thinking maybe that was my favorite non-Froome moment. But okay, no, we're talking about things that these are things did that not, do not invo- that not he did not okay. do himself. Okay, so non-Froome <laughs> moments like let me give you some examples: the stage seven a collapse of the one k to go, a balloon thingy, um, Roman Bardet's daring move on stage nineteen. It was kind of that Babe Ruth moment. He said he was going to do it. He said he was going to go, and he did. Um, maybe the resurgence of Markav and Dish and his, his sprinting abilities. Uh, we had the tightest top 10 in kind of in tour history. We had three photo finish sprints, and those three races were decided by two centimeters or less combined. Um, one was won by Cav, the other by Sagan, the other by Kittel. So let's circle back here with our panel. Fatty, Tour de France 2016, your non-Froome moment. Any single mention of Greg Vanabernat. Deep, 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 deep. Exactly. What do you mean by that? Vanabernat. Deep, 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 deep. Vanabernat. You mean this? Deep, 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 deep. Vanabernat. 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 Now, Greg didn't get a lot of mentions... During the race, he, you know, he was there, and but when you heard his name, this is what you heard, huh? Okay, so anyone of my age or older or perhaps slightly younger has got to remember that Muppets classic, and Greg Vanabernot <laughs> has a name that exactly works with that meter. And so, yeah, anytime his name was mentioned... Uh, either my wife or I would look at the other and say, you know, beep, 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 beep. It, it, so, okay, so we're so we're ridiculous. Um, but, that qualifies. That is I a non froom moment. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? We just lost uh, like Daddy, half our listeners. Sometimes what makes the tour so cool is you're hanging around and you've got it on and it's on for five, six hours. And these are the things that come up and... And maybe this is why we miss the tour when, it, you know, you have that little tour kind of hangover or you kind of long for it to be on because it's like that background noise and it creates these little things that you, that you remember forever. And yours is now Greg Van Avermont beep, and beep, beep, the Muppets. Sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, my non... Oh, wait. Let, I got to go back to Patrick. Sorry about that, Patrick. What is your non me moment? Well, I'd, I'd say the, the four-man breakaway of uh, Sagan, Froome, Garrett Thomas, and uh, whoever it was. I forget now who lost. Um, you know, the, the way that Sagan took the bull by the horns, you know, I just, uh, that's real racing. That's racing that I'm sure that Eddie Merckx looked at and went, yeah, um, mm-hmm. I loved that. You know, um, that might actually... That might actually have been my favorite event of the entire tour. Hmm. Okay, cool. Well, my non-fru moment is equally as frivolous as my frumi fave. Yeah, again, I go to uh, the last stage. This is the rollout from Chantilly. Not Chantilly, by the way. It's Chantilly. Uh, they entered what looked like a park, uh, and then the bunch got on a dirt path. Game on. <laughs> the Tour de France had finally given me what I'd always wanted, a gravel race. <laughs> it was kind of a light-duty gravel race, because really they were in a park, and it was a path, and it lasted about... A kilometer. But nonetheless, we had skinny tires in dirt, and it wasn't a hill or anything like that. It was, it was a little gravel race that broke out. Uh, which, actually, my pointless observation here does get me to another question for you guys. What if the ASO uh, were to flatten things out a little bit through this three-week tour and roughen things up? Make it possible for guys like, say, a Sagan or Garrett Thomas or Conchalara in his prime to have a shot not only at wearing yellow, but defending it into Paris. 
just seems like the Grand Tours have come down or set up for you know a handful of riders. And then after crashes and time gaps, it wa- it's actually whittled down to a, a couple of guys by the time the third week rolls around. Patrick, are the, are the multiple winners, especially that, that fivesome club, uh, would they have the same success on today's routes? Or does something need to be adjusted here? Oh, there's no question that Eddie Merckx would not have won five tours if the courses were the ones, the sort, you know, that they run today. Uh, I think there's a chance that Ancatil might have done it, but he wasn't really even the best uh, climber of his day. He was the best time trialist of his day, but he was a, you know, he was a pretty darn good climber as well. And so I, you know, I would really love to see the tour start including 100 kilometer long time trials again, you know, 100K mm-hmm. ITTs, you know, longer triple Ts. I, you know, there's no question that if the tour continues in the direction that it's been going, you know, we're going to end up with, I don't know, dragonflies on top of, you know, paper clips instead of spiders or something. I don't know, mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, the, the riders are tiny because of the way the race courses are, are being designed. And, right. um, you know, if you, if you make, it's possible to make an ITT course interesting, you know, visually interesting. The problem is that very often they don't, you know, it's just, right. you know, flat roads out in the middle of nowhere. And so you're watching paint dry. That's not dynamite, but that doesn't mean that all ITTs have to be like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't watch, I generally don't watch those stages. At least I don't, I, I might go to the to the last three or four guys and watch that. But I find them to be boring. From a fan perspective, I find them to be boring to watch. And it sounds like what you're saying is from a racer's perspective, it just doesn't it doesn't bring enough men into the game on the GC side of things. It's actually hurting uh, what otherwise could be a, a more competitive race. Fatty, let's... Uh, what do you say we put them on mountain bikes for a stage or really mix it up? Do you have any, do you have any ideas or any thoughts about maybe spicing this thing up some? Make a stage that is unmarked and self-supported, and they don't announce when or where it begins. Bring some, <laughs> now bring some creativity into this sucker. <laughs> Make him do some homework. Yep. Alley cats? Yes. <laughs> A pump track. Okay, let's continue. let's continue to spice up the tour. While we're tearing <laughs> this thing down, we've got dirt stages in, maybe some mountain bikes. Uh, let's talk about the jersey competitions for a second. Uh, currently, there are four, GC, KOM, Sprints, Youngster, that would be yellow, polka dot, green, white. How about a fifth jersey? Something that could be competed for every day. What should it be, and what color would it be? Who wants to go first? I'll go I'll first. I'll jump in. No. Okay. You, no, me first. You. you. <laughs> uh, a Mr. Congeniality Award. <laughs> oh. uh, and the color shall be purple so this would be judged and how would you judge it um at some point along the stage there will be a pedestrian in distress and (laughs) (laughs) whoever best helps that pedestrian in distress will receive a time bonus okay that's worthy. This is Patrick, the worst they have, podcast they have the most aggressive rider, but again, <laughs> <laughs> let's start this one over, <laughs> or just my part. I'm I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm having a ball. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay, Patrick. They have this. Mo- they have the most aggressive rider that's awarded on a daily basis. It's hard to really kind of nail that thing down and have it a day to day competition. So, do you have any thoughts about maybe a fifth jersey? Is it? Is it worth throwing in, and what would it be? Uh, well, we could do least aggressive rider, no. <laughs> <laughs> the passive sorry. jersey. Sorry. Okay, I think um, I think we've talked about the Thomas Vokler jersey. You mean riding at the back jersey? Yeah, yeah. no, it, it would. It, yeah, the jersey would be white with black letters on it, just saying as if. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, uh, no. I would, you know, I would really love to see something either voted on by the, you know, the the team leaders uh, of each team or the journalist for best domestique each day. The guy who Excellent. killed himself the most and everybody else around them were going, man, I kind of wish he was on my team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, my jersey is the orange jersey for the segment leader. This kind of follows the enduro model. Predetermined segments for each stage. Riders get times for each segment, and the racer with the best time wears the orange jersey. And hey, Strava could sponsor could be a sponsor, it. right? Because the jersey, of course, is orange. So segment leader. Um, that could cause absolute mayhem. Therefore, absolutely, I'm all for it. <laughs> sure, it could. I love the sponsorship opportunities too. Uh, let's see what else here from the tour. Record 175 riders finished the thing. The old record was 170. So yeah, there were a lot of crashes as always. But maybe these guys are getting a little tougher. Certainly, a Pierre Roland is he's a tough guy. He proved that. He went down to the Pyrenees, spent the next couple of weeks healing up on the bike. Targeted stage 19 for the win. And what happened in stage 19? He crashed again. Mm-hmm. He got up. The, uh, he got up. Got back on his bike. Got on the next day and gave it another go. And he kept trying. So. Uh, but good that um, more riders are actually finishing the event instead of uh, jumping in ambulances. Our family man, Lawrence Tandam, was a finisher. He wrapped up his eighth Tour de France in 73rd, two hours 53 behind Froome. He showed up in the break on uh, stage 19, I think. Said he was uh, pretty tired, though, in the third week, so competing for a stage win may have ended somewhere between the Pyrenees and the Alps. But his job this time was uh, to watch after the youngster on the giant Alpacine squad, Warren Bargui, who was riding his first tour, and Bargui finished 23rd. Lawrence, by the way, guys, has some great stuff on his Facebook page. He has really taken to the social media stuff, especially the videos. So for some behind-the-scenes stuff, check out Lawrence on Facebook. Uh, you get a nice little look at what he does with his teammates when they're not on the bike. Ooh, I like that for a jersey idea. Coming up, idea. Uh, Patrick, what was that, Fatty? I'm sorry. I was going to say, there's your jersey idea, best Instagram account. It can... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we are having so best many Best fan ideas. engagement. Right. I think that goes with your congeniality jersey. Yes. Right there. Yes. Best outreach. <laughs> right? I like it. <laughs> Okay, c'est la vie, au revoir, Tour de France. We'll, we'll see you in 2017. Coming up, Patrick is going to uh, grab the leader's microphone on the pace line for some thoughts on our place in advocacy. And for all you who have felt gypped by NBC for going to NASCAR and failing to get back to the podium center- ceremony at the Tour, here's your Tour de France winner on the Champs with a few thoughts on his V and the courage of a nation. This tour has obviously taken place against the backdrop of terrible events in Nice. And we pay our respects once again to those who lost their lives in this terrible event. Of course, these kind of events put sport into perspective, but they also show why the values of sport are so important to free society. We, we all love the tour. To- Tour de France because it's unpredictable, but we love the tour more for what it's. F- f- sorry, we all love the tour because it's unpredictable, but we love the tour more for what stays the same: the passion of the fans from every nation along the roadside, the beauty of the French countryside, and the bonds of friendship created through sport. These things will never change. guys so we're going to shift gears a little bit and i want to begin by asking each you each of you a question are you members of any cycling advocacy organizations stc uh actually you're not you can't be a member of them you can just donate but imba Mm -hmm. people for bikes uh your your state's uh bike coalition are you members of any of those organizations yes i am sweet Michael? Which one? I am... Well, here's... Oh, go ahead. (laughs) 
Here, yeah, I uh, have memberships pending. I have been a member of Greenpeace in the past, uh, the LA County Bike Coalition. Uh, I've been a member of, and most recently, uh, a member of IMBA, although my membership has expired because I'm kind of on the fence about what to do next, um, where to put my dollars uh, with advocacy. Okay. And, and Eldon, uh, Fatty, sorry, uh, <laughs> what is it you... <laughs> What is it you're a member of? I am a member of uh, IMBA, and um, I, I I don't have concerns about uh, keeping that, but I do uh, intend to join STC. Very cool. So advocacy has become, for reasons that uh, may or may not become more apparent in time, uh, it's become a, a bigger concern for me. It's really a, a big growing concern uh, for me, uh, and my relationship to the bike industry. And it's for a couple of different reasons. Um, I recently reviewed a, an e-assist cargo bike and, uh, using that thing to run errands and whatnot, it got me to thinking more and more about, you know, uh, infrastructure and policy and those sorts of issues. Uh, but also I've been riding, you know, off-road in more places you know, both dirt roads and single track. And, you know, I've been thinking about access to single track and, you know, the Wilderness Act and the ability to uh, have access not just to uh, trails, but also uh, unpaved roads. And it's, it's really made me think about how my history uh, in the sport, you know, I advocate for a lot, it, it, it kind of indirectly, in that I advocate for new equipment. You know, every time you do a review of something, it's an implicit sort of recommendation. Um, and, you know, every time you, uh, you, you know, do race coverage or anything like that, you know, there is a certain implicit sort of recommendation that you ought to follow this. You ought to pay attention to this. But I don't think bike sites, bike magazines have done a particularly great job at reminding everyone that advocacy is a big, important part of, you know, what allows us to be out there. Um, and so I, I'm curious, Michael, you know, why is it you're contemplating maybe not keeping up your IMBA membership? Because I am torn between uh, why I, I, I think I need to choose sides. I don't know. It's kind of silly, actually. But I'm torn between the IMBA STC um, argument the way it stands now. I mean, do I, you know, IMBA appeals to my compromise side to say, look, we're not just going to barge in and demand a lot of things. We want to work through the process. We want to work through, you know, the people who are in power now and not upset the apple cart too much. STC seems to be a lot more aggressive and, and willing to put themselves out there and, and have a voice at very high levels. And, and I like that too. Um, I guess my, my only issue with the, with the Wilderness Act and what STC is doing is, um, from a personal writing standpoint, I have not seen some of the losses that maybe Fatty has, who probably lives closer to National Forest or wilderness areas or folks in Idaho. I mean, those people are directly impacted by what the federal government does when it establishes a, a, a wilderness area. And I am not. So I'm having a harder time uh, making that leap in the you know, seeing is, is a lot closer ally to what I do in this area and where I ride. They work on trails that I ride all the time. Yep. Um, but th the other reason is maybe I'll just go somewhere else and I'll put my money into some other cause. I mean, I've backed the, the bike coalitions before and I do obviously ride the streets as well. And I was a bike commuter for a very long time. So, I mean, I, I tend to, this is, I get this from my father. This is my father's gene. Uh, he is very deliberate and he carefully thinks about uh, these types of decisions, even if it's only 50 bucks for an annual, you know, an annual membership. Well, for my part, I thought about it. It's like, you know, $100 for me to spend on advocacy isn't really a lot of money. At 125 you know, it's pretty negligible. And so, you know, over uh, a period of time recently, uh, I re-upped my membership for IMBA. Uh, I joined People for Bikes. I sent some money to the STC. Uh, there's a new advocacy organization uh, in Sonoma County, the Redwood Empire Mountain Bike Alliance. 
I gave them some member uh, some money. I'm now one of the uh, allegedly founding members. I don't really feel mm -hmm. like what I did was all that special, but uh, okay. Uh, and I'm also a member of the Sonoma County Bike Coalition. And, uh, you know, it's all told, it wasn't a lot of money. And every one of those organizations is doing something that may not have an obvious impact on my life, but they're all doing something that improves my life as a cyclist. And I felt like, well, you know, why focus on any, any one of those? They all need the support. Uh, and it, you know, in the grand scheme, it's, it's not that big an ask for me. And uh, so I actually wrote uh, a post recently called The Other. And not only do I make the case in there that we need to support all of these organizations, um, but, and, you know, the, the recent uh, bill introduced by Mike Lee in Fatty's state, uh, S.3205, um, you know, Mike Lee's got a, well, <laughs> Fatty, you tell us. He's your guy. <laughs> what sort of reputation does this guy have? Uh, he, he's an extremely deep red Republican, uh, very pro-business. Um, so to see him doing this, uh, has, you know, really s sort of gives you a sense that there is a, a business, um, a, you know, a business angle to it. And I'm fine with that as long, you know, as long as it, I'm getting the things that I want, uh, I don't really care too much about other people's motives. The, the thing that troubles me is so many of the RKP readers who've been chiming in on this, you know, they all think it's some sort of Trojan horse uh, that they, they, you know, because he's a Tea Party guy, mm -hmm. they can't work with him at all. And so one of the cases I'm trying to make is that, you know, the moment we give into that partisan rancor, we're not going to get anything done. If we're going to see more trails opened, you know, wilderness areas opened, uh, you know, better facilities for bicycles out on the road, better consideration given to us by drivers and by law enforcement. There's only one way these things are going to happen, and it's by working with as many people as we possibly can. We've got to work with the Audubon Society. We've got to work with the Sierra Club. We've got to sell them on the fact that, you know, preserving wild places is something that's going to require a big team effort. And I just, I think the time has come. We all need to make a bigger push in advocacy. With the problem, I, let me just digress back to the, or keep you on this topic real quick. And that is the problem with Lee and Orrin Hatch, by the way, is also behind this bill. And they both have terrible environmental records. There's 100 senators in, in the, in, on Capitol Hill. And, and these were the two, right, that stepped forward yep. or that STC said, yeah, th these, these are the two we want to carry this legislation. Um, I think what your readers might be questioning is the motive here by Lee and Hatch. Oh yeah. And, no, they uh, totally not whether think... or not we need to all get along. Of course we all need to get along. We need, you know, there's gridlock on Capitol Hill. Everyone knows that. And the way to get through that gridlock is to bring people together and try to get along. But you know, a little skepticism uh, here I think is deserved. Well, uh, you know, it's one thing to ask a question. Uh, that's perfectly fine and reasonable. The problem is when you go, well, no, that guy's, a, a, he's been a jerk all along and I absolutely won't work with him. You know, it's as if because he has differing views, uh, from you, you, you won't even try to work with him. You just dis dismiss everything he does. And you know, that's, that's just no good for society. Mm -hmm. uh, on the bill, Patrick, I get you covered the bill last week in our show and Imba has, um, issued a response to that bill, would you like to hear that response? It yeah. comes from Mike Van Abel. He's the, yeah, he's the president of IMBA, and I think we've explained the bill pretty well. It, it allows local land managers to consider on a case-by-case -case basis if specific trails in wilderness areas should be opened to mountain biking. Again, it wouldn't allow mountain bikers just to run amok everywhere. They would decide this on a case-by-case -case basis if the, if the bill were to become a law. Uh, Van Abel wrote this, Imba is pleased to see the issue of access by mountain bikes on trails and public lands rise to this level of a much-needed national conversation. For that, we are grateful to Senators Lee and Hatch for their engagement. However, Imba 
is also on the record with the strong belief that amending the Wilderness Act comes not only with a risk of unintended consequences, especially political consequences, and further polarization of the stewardship and outdoor recreation community, and is unnecessary to preserve mountain bike access while also achieving landscape-level conservation. By the way, Van Abel, that's a run-on sentence. You should find a period in there somewhere. While we commend Senators Lee and Hatch for their interest, we also have deep concerns that there are other agendas that this bill could facilitate especially a public land seizure agenda. IMBA does support a portion of the bill, the language that changes the definition of mountain biking to a non-motorized form of transportation. They say the mechanized transport language in regulations written in 1964 is ill-defined and unnecessarily confusing to many public land managers. I think they're right on that point. Uh, a land grab, a public land seizure agenda, I don't, know, I don't quite follow that, but... Um, that would be Imba's response to the bill. Again, um, that's kind of the tone we've heard from Imba on this all along, back when the STC first formed and first put notice out there that they were coming after Imba members and going after the Wilderness Act. So pretty much um, status quo from Imba on that. Uh, we also have a follow-up on another advocacy issue uh, that we covered last week. And that's the signage issue we talked about in a place very popular with cyclists, the L.A. area town of Palos Verdes Estates. There have been three cycling-related deaths in and near that city in the past year. So the Palos Verdes Estates City Council has approved taking down signs that say bicycle laws strictly enforced, and they will be replacing them with six signs that advise of California's three-foot law. Uh, City Council deferred action on the bicycles may use the full lane signs so their committee can figure out just where those signs should be placed. No one spoke directly against the signs uh, last Tuesday night when the council approved them, but you could tell based on comments from some city council members that the city had received complaints. Here's Councilman John Rabb. When you have a narrow street with a car and a bicycle... I don't care how many lines you draw on the street or how many signs you post or how many laws Sacramento passes, it's an inherently unsafe situation. And uh, we all have different reactions. My reaction is I'm not going to ride my bike there. Other people do. That's, that's good for them. That's their right. They're entitled to do it. Um, but I'm, you know, there's people like me as well that I, it's not just our city. It's all over the places that just putting a bicycle and a car in a, in a close space um, is, is asking for trouble. So I think, you know, it, it behooves us to, you know, take more steps than we've taken so far in our city uh, in terms of, you know, what we can do, you know, posting the signs, education, most importantly, uh, looking at, the, looking at the, the striping on the roadways, uh, and everybody being more uh, aware of themselves and their surroundings. There's something of note about Palos Verdes Estates and what Councilman Rea was alluding to there, that the city actually has no bike lanes, not one. And I think that's another reason the council feels compelled to do something on the education sign. And on these signs, oh, we've all seen three-foot uh, law signs. It's the law signs, you know, three-foot, it's the law postings. And cyclists may use the full lane. Since those are both laws, they are both in the California Vehicle Code, why not put the code in small print on that signage? I think it would, would further the point with drivers that these are laws here we are talking about and not just some made-up stuff by bike groups or riders or politicians. So PVE, Palos Verdes Estates guys, they pass that little signage along. They're going to keep, they're going to keep on this too. They look like they're going to pursue uh, more signage and the education of drivers there in that very popular riding area. Gearheads, you're next. Uh, we open the garage door and check out an electronic group set still in the works, but could not hide from the cameras at the tour. And Patrick has an interesting bike he's been riding. We're going to hear about, well, I love curry. I love to eat curry, but this is not curry you eat. Something else. Coming up next on the Pace Line. One of the speakers talked about the experience of hitting a, a cyclist. It's something that will never be forgotten.
The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Fatty of FatCyclist.com, Patrick Brady, RKP, and Michael Houghton here. Gear segment time, guys. Uh, Gearheads alert. Um, few things in our garage this week. First of all, what I found, uh, FSA's Electronic Grupo has been spotted for the second year in a row at the Tour. It was mounted on BH bikes uh, ridden by the Direct Energy team and Orbeas under the Cofidis squad. No details yet from FSA on this, so only picks to go on for, uh, right now. Uh, it does look like a wired system. Levers have uh, curves, almost like the current campy stuff. And hoods look on, on the smaller side, kind of like the SRAM uh, mechanical stuff. Uh, shifting looks to be executed with a, a pair of uh, rocker buttons um, on those levers. Hard to tell much else. Eurobike is uh, two months away, so hopefully more from FSA then. And Patrick, man, you've been, uh, of course, always riding a lot of interesting equipment, but uh, uh, now you've gone uh, family style with your <laughs> test bikes. Uh, first of all, I love the name of this bike. It's Spicy Curry, right? Yep. And uh, tell us about this bike, and and it's they make it pretty close to, or at least the, the company's pretty close to where you live. Yeah, yeah. They're just down the road in Petaluma. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they're in a, a neat little... Uh, uh, collection of buildings. Uh, frame builder Bruce Gordon is literally next door to them. There's uh, an outfit uh, doing kayaks and canoes and whatnot. So it's a, a neat little spot there in Petaluma. But the Spicy Curry is a cargo bike uh, produced by Yuba Bikes. And Yuba is led by uh, an expat Frenchman who you know got to the U.S. and uh, wanted to uh, get around without driving so much, and so he, he launched his own company, you know. Um, and more recently, they've started adding some e-assist units to some of the bike. And the Spicy Curry, um, it's a, a long bike so that you can carry some kids with you, and it got its name by the uh, the Curry Tech e-assist that's, uh, that's used on it. That's where the name comes from. <clears throat> okay, so they're not like fans of Thai cuisine or of um, Indian cuisine. It's just no, they are that too. <laughs> they are that too. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know wh- why not bring a, bring together two great tastes, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I spent uh, a couple of weeks riding around on this thing. So there's a, a bench in the back. Uh, there's only a twenty inch we- uh, twenty inch wheel in the rear, so that when you when they designed the frame and put that bench in, it's much lower than it would have been had they used a 700C wheel or, you know, even a 26-inch wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a pad on top of the bench, and then there's a little set of handlebars off of uh, the rider's, uh, the you know, captain, as it were, uh, his seat post. And then in the very back of the bike is a, yep, child seat, uh, which, based on the many child seats I've seen over the years is the best constructed of the bunch. Um, and so I would take the boys to daycare and day camp, uh, pick them up that way, make stops at the grocery store. And there was a porteur rack mounted to the frame in the front. And so I could grab a, you know, a couple of bags of groceries, uh, you know, buy some frozen pizza for the boys on our way home. And they loved going anywhere. It didn't stop them from fighting some. Uh, you know, you get two little boys <laughs> like that that close to you. Stop touching me. Uh, and then there were times where I actually said, don't make me pull this bike over. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, shades of my that, mom. That is a summer drive right there. Yeah. So how was it to handle? Is it, is it like handling a, a bike that, that long? And, and there's some weight involved too. So it's, it's remarkably nimble. Uh, the one thing you really kind of had to be careful with, or at least I felt I needed to be careful with, was the level of, of assist. So if you're rolling away from a stop, uh, an assist level of one, two, or maybe three out of the four assist levels, um, that was good for getting going. But if you had it in level four and you goosed the pedals the wrong way, it would lurch like a, a, you know, a, a jabbed horse. And uh, so that could be a little difficult to control. But normally, you know, it was a, a reasonably nimble bike for how long it was, um, you know, very well balanced. And with the kids on the back, because they were down pretty low, 
that helped to lower the center of gravity. And so, you know, getting through a parking lot, rolling up onto the sidewalk and parking outside of a grocery store, all of that was super easy to do. And I tell you, never in my life has a bike gotten so much attention from other people. People were stopping me at stoplights, you know, stop signs, at grocery stores, at camp, everywhere I went. People were just just absolutely fascinated by the bike. They would ask questions about it. You know, they want to know who made it, you know, how much it cost, all that stuff. There was a level of interest in this bike that my Danucci doesn't get. Uh, and that's mm. saying something. And yeah, uh, when, I, when I actually returned the bike to them, the boys were dejected. I, I, honestly, I thought Philip was going to cry. <laughs> yeah. They still ask about the green bike. The green bike. Yes. Well, it's the Spicy Curry by, by Yuba Bikes, and there are pics on redkiteprayer.com along with more information from Patrick on that bike. So check that out. It is well, Patrick and I both were eyeballing that thing at Interbike. In fact, the Outdoor Fest, they had it there. And it is a, it is a cool thing, and it's one of those things. We were talking about advocacy today a lot. It's one of those ways that you know can help people get around and cover those small trips um, where you're only going a couple miles and it's not involving uh, a cat two climb. Um, this is a, a great option to have. Um, Patrick's got two kids and some groceries on there, and he's getting a small workout while while he's at it too. So the spicy curry by Yuba Bikes, good stuff. Yeah, uh, that's gonna wrap up the pace line for this time. But we're going to check in with our folks here. Uh, Fatty, uh, what is happening at the Fat Cyclist and the Fatty Cast? Well, the Fat Cyclist, I've got lots of fun stuff going on right now. I just today posted part 14 in my Rockwell Relay write up. <laughs> That's a record. I am not kidding. Um, it is a record. Um, it, was an, it was a pretty amazing story. Um, I, I, at least I, it was amazing uh, to experience it. Uh, also on fatcyclist.com, I'm currently running a fundraising contest uh, to benefit NICA, uh, National Interscholastic uh, Cycling Association, uh, mount, you know, mountain bikes for high school kids. And on that, I am letting people vote with their dollars to determine what my focus will be when I race the Leadville 100 in a couple weeks, whether I race on a geared hardtail, which is what my plan had been, or I race on a single speed, or I race on a single speed as a domestique for my wife, who is going to be racing on a single speed, making an attempt at breaking her own Leadville 100 single speed record. Mm-hmm. So far, or... You could ride a trike with me on the handlebars. <laughs> I'm voting for that now. Yeah, there you go. Make a large enough donation, and I'm right there with you. Um, for the for the until we hit the dirt, at which point we stop going downhill and problems begin. Um, right now, okay. what's been interesting is I have more than 88 percent of the people who have voted are saying that I need to ride as a single-speeding domestique for my wife. In the absence of a good size, by which I mean four-digit donation, it looks like I'm riding single-speed for my wife in Leadville this year. And, wow, okay. And happy to do it, because that means uh, there have been some significant donations. Um, some, some people who are apparently interested in me uh, racing on my wife's behalf. And I'm looking forward to it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on the fatty cast, I know if for folks who want to learn more about, uh, the origins of the Leadville trail, 100 fatty has an interview with the founder, Ken Clover up. And then of course the Yuri Hoswald interview is fresh. That's up. And then anything else you've got, uh, in the edit bay. Uh, I am going to be, and I believe I mentioned this last week, but we had to defer it. Uh, I, I made a scheduling error. Uh, but I'm going to be having sushi and a podcast interview with the uh, amazing Ted King this weekend, and we'll be posting that ASAP. 
the current Dirty Kansas 200 champion, Ted King. That's right. And he'll be that racing be cool. Leadville as well. He will? Okay. Yeah. Looking forward to. I don't know all if I just happenings. broke news by saying that. I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think it's a known fact that he's in. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I think he went to Tahoe and raced at the qualifier there and then said afterwards, I had great fun and we'll see you all in Leadville or something okay. like that. Okay. So, Phew. Yeah. The real question is, will he be on the Cannondale slate, which is what he won the cons on? So, uh, great. Uh, Patrick, let's see. We have the Spicy Curry review on RKP. We have your piece on advocacy. Anything else you want to point to? Well, coming up will be a couple of pieces coming out of my recent visit to a certain Irvine-based uh, bike company. Uh, the stuff of which I rode is currently under embargo, as I mentioned. But August 1st, the embargo's off, and I get to start posting that material. And it was, it was really cool. Okay. Probably by the time people download this podcast, uh, we might be able to see those articles on RKP about secret stuff from an Orange County-based bike company. Yeah. Okay. Uh, of course, we're still interested in hearing from Pace Liners on uh, how you roll during the campaign season. Man, it's been electrifying so far from both parties. Um, we want to know, though, what goes on when you are riding in group rides or just with friends and politics comes up. Do you engage? Do you ride away? Politics, is that part of... Is that okay with you when you're riding, or is is a bike ride a political safe zone? So again, your comments welcome at RKP on that. Just anywhere on one of our shows would be great. Send us an email, uh, send a smoke signal, whatever you want to do with that. Okay, uh, the pace line can be found on redcadeprayer.com along with uh, show notes and a pretty picture too as well. Subscribe to uh, uh, po- the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, by the way, at Paceline Podcast. So for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Hutton. We'll talk to you next time on the Paceline. Vive le Tour et vive la France. Merci à Christopher Froome. Petite traduction des propos tenus en anglais dans quelques instants.